0: Wonderful to be together. Let's gather around God's word, uh, if you would. And we're going to open up to Second Samuel chapter 9. Second Samuel chapter 9. Start my watch here. While you're turning there, let me begin with a, uh, a story, if I can, or a quote that I read recently in a book by a man called Tom Stephan. And his book is called Reconnecting God's Story to Cross-Cultural Ministry. And he says this, no matter where you travel in the world, you will find that people love to tell and to listen to stories. Young children, teenagers, and seniors all love to enter the life experiences of others through stories. Whatever the topic discussed, stories become an integral part of the dialogue. Stories are used to argue a point to inject humor, to illustrate a key insight, to comfort a despondent friend, or to challenge a champion, or simply to pass the time of day. No matter what its use, a story has a unique way of finding its way into a conversation. Stories can be told and heard anywhere. They are appropriate in churches, in prisons, in courthouses, and around campfires. While stories provide dates and times and places and names and chronologies, They simultaneously provoke tears and cheers, fear, anger, confidence, conviction, sarcasm, despair, and hope. Stories draw listeners into the lives of the characters. And listeners not only hear what has happened to such characters, but through their imagination, they can enter into the experience. Then he says this. Almost two-thirds of our Bible are stories. And Bible stories are packed with theology, causing reason and imagination and emotions to collide, teasing the hearer into reflecting on new ways of thinking about life, pushing people to encounter God and change. I thought that was great when I read that. This morning we're going to read a story a true story, not a fable or a fairy tale or a made up story, but a true story from God's word that tells us something about King David, something about a man called Mephibosheth, something about God and something about us. So would you read with me? Second Samuel, chapter 9 we We're going to read the whole chapter. <clears throat> this is what it says. This is what God's word says. And David said, "Is there anybody still left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake?" Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Zeba, and they called to him to, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, "Are you Zeba?" And he said, "I am your servant." And then the king said to him, "Is there not still someone of the house of Saul?" That I may show the kindness of God to him. And Ziba said to the king. There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him. Where is he? And Ziba said to the king. Well he's he's in the house of Machiah The son of Amiel at Lodebar. Then David sent and brought him from the house of Machia. The son of Amiel at Lo-debar, And Mephibosheth. The son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of, your, of Saul, your father, and you shall eat always at my table. And he paid homage and he said, what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called to Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him. And shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servants, so shall your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons and Mephibosheth had a younger son whose name was Micah and all who lived in Zeba's house became Mephibosheth's servants and so Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem for he ate always at the king's table and he was lame in both his feet would you pray with me just as we open up God's word together let's ask for God's help Father, we are so grateful for the word that we hold in our hands that has come from your mouth and come from your heart and comes to address each of us this morning. We pray, Lord, as we read this story, that we would see something of who you are and your heart towards us as your people, that you would use it to strengthen our faith. Help us to encounter you through it, through your spirit and use this story with all of its content and characters, to change us to be the people that you want us to be, to see more of you, to behold more of you, and to respond to you in worship, we pray. In the name of Jesus, we ask these things. Amen. Amen. Well, First and Second Samuel, if you know your Bibles at all, are incredibly rich storytelling books of the Bible. That focus on the lives of Samuel and Saul and David, and there's uh, these two characters in particular, Saul and David, and the first two kings of Israel. That the whole uh, first two, the first books of First and Second Samuel are tied up in telling the story. But when you get to the book of Second Samuel, it begins to focus in a little bit more on the life of David, and it begins on a sad note because. David discovers that his best friend, Jonathan, and Jonathan's father, Saul, who was the first king of Israel, uh, have passed away. They've died on a battlefield. And so there's a note of sadness that begins the book. But then the book begins to recount how David becomes king of Israel and how he begins to bring together these kind of uh, disparate 12 tribes of Israel into one united and powerful nation under his kingship. And he begins to eliminate the internal opposition to his kingship and the internal uh, threats that he faces as he unites the tribes together. And then he captures Jerusalem and makes it the capital of his new kingdom. And then he brings the Ark of the Covenant, the the symbol of the very presence of God into the city of Jerusalem and into the, the very center of life in the kingdom. And then if you know your Bibles at all, uh, you might be familiar with the second Samuel chapter seven, which is one of the kind of the real pinnacle and highlights of the Old Testament uh, and one of the major turning points of the entire Bible as David is living in his palace in Jerusalem. And he, he has this kind of, uh, I don't know whether it's a conscience, a crisis of conscience. He sits there one day and he realizes he's living amongst this palace built of the finest wood and gold while God's. Uh, The Ark of the Covenant, the the presence of God dwells in a tent. And David has this thought that he wants to build a permanent house for God. He wants to build him a temple and move him from his temporary tent dwelling into a permanent home. uh, Right in the center of of the life of Jerusalem. And so David begins to make plans. But it soon becomes apparent to David through the work and words of the prophet Nathan that God does not want David to just build a house. For him, in fact, God wants to build a house for David. And we're told that God is going to build a, a dynasty, a dynasty, however you pronounce it, uh, in, in, this, in this nation. One nation, uh, well, two nations aren't we separated by one common language. Uh, but remember, uh, it's, it's English. Uh, and so uh, just we, uh, however I pronounce things is always the right way. Uh, <coughs> just so you know, uh, I, I, I speak the Queen's English. <laughs> Not really. Uh, God promises to build David a dynasty. He promises that he will one day bring along uh, a son of David who will forever dwell on the throne of David. And he will be the forever king. He will reign and rule over God's people forever. God makes that promise to him in Second Samuel chapter 7. A highlight in the scriptures that are then worked out for the rest of the book. But then in chapter 8 of 2 Samuel, uh, David sets about decisively defeating all the enemies of Israel. He secures great victories over the Philistines, over the Moabites, over the Edomites. And he eliminates all the external threats that Israel was faced with. Old age-old enemies that were constantly battling the twelve tribes. David puts them to the sword and secures his throne, establishes his empire, and reaches the height of his power. This is the, this is the point really at the end of chapter 8 where David's throne is, is at its pinnacle. Israel's power is at, at, is at its height. The borders are secured. There's peace in the nation and amongst the nations. And then, at this point in Israel's history, something jogs David's memory that he needs to fulfill a promise that he made 20 years beforehand to his best friend, Jonathan. Now, this promise you can read about in in 1 Samuel chapter 20. We haven't got time to go there this morning. But in 1 Samuel chapter 20, if if you remember the story, perhaps, or maybe you don't, but Saul is pursuing David. Saul is the king at the time, and he... David has been anointed as king. He knows that David is going to be king at some point, but he wants him dead. So he pursues him. He goes after him. He's on, a, he's on a witch hunt to get David and to take his life from him. But Jonathan, Saul's son, and David are best friends. And Jonathan determines to help David escape from the murderous threats of his father, of his father Saul. And so he tells him, listen, I'll help you escape. Uh, they come up a plan involving shooting arrows And and Jonathan says, listen, I'll help you escape my father as long as you make me this promise. When you do become king, anybody from my household, from my family, you'll just spare their life. Please, just spare the life of my descendants when you become king. And so David, having cut off his enemies, having secured the borders, having established peace and prosperity for the nation of Israel, remembers this promise and knows that it's time to honor his word to his friend Jonathan, and so in verse one of our chapter that we read, we find that David calls out to his servants he makes a proclamation, "Is there anybody from the house of Jonathan from the house of Saul that I can show kindness to that I can keep my promise and I can exercise my the fulfillment of my word and so he calls all of his servants together, they discover through uh, the servant Zeba, that there is indeed a descendant of Saul and a descendant of Jonathan who is still alive and so they call for him now ordinarily if you read history or read um, if you've read first and second kings what you'll find is that when a new king ascends to the throne and this happened in history in England and in France and in Europe when a king ascends the throne uh, usually what happens the first thing that the king would do is he would slaughter all of the people from the ex- from the previous dynasty. He would slaughter the house of the previous king to, to basically purge the old regime so that no one could rise up and challenge them. So that there would not be a coup at some point. There would not be a rebellion against the new king. And so normally what would happen is the king would go through the nation, send his finest warriors to, uh, to dispatch and do away with anybody who might be a threat to his rule. One commentator says that kings would solidify their position through liquidization of their enemies. And I thought that was a nice way of remembering it. Solidify your position by liquidizing your enemies enemies. Everybody did it. There's examples in First Kings 15, 1 Kings 16, 2 Kings 10. Everybody knew it. Everybody believed it. And so probably when David says, is there anybody left of the house of Saul, of the house of Jonathan, all of his servants would have been expecting some kind of inevitable bloodbath. But David has a different agenda. David has a different thing. And so he takes the initiative in verse 5 to call Mephibosheth. Perhaps a man with the most difficult Bible name to speak. He calls him, he says, bring Mephibosheth to me. I want to see him. And so that's what happens. The word is sent out among Israel to bring this man before the king. And you'll notice that the narrator of our story wants us to know two things that are crucial to understand about Mephibosheth. Two things, his physical condition and his hereditary he wants us to know about his physical condition, first of all, because he tells us twice in verse 3 and in verse 13 that Mephibosheth is, a, is crippled, he's disabled, he's lame in both feet. Now, we know the reason why, if you go back to chapter 4 of Second Samuel, because in chapter 4, word reaches the household of the king when Saul is king, with word that Saul and Jonathan have been defeated in battle. And Mephibosheth's nurse collects up and picks up this four or five-year-old child and begins to try and escape because she knows what's coming. And what happens as the nurse runs with Mephibosheth in her arms is she trips and falls. And through this fall, Mephibosheth is disabled. He becomes crippled in both feet. He's left marred and disabled and disfigured and helpless because of a terrible fall. And that, as I read this story, my heart goes out to this four or five-year-old. I have a four-year-old son who, who is active beyond what I can bear uh, sometimes. And just the thought that if something was to happen and he would fall and he would be confined to a wheelchair is, is deeply saddening to me as a father. And, and maybe that's the case for you, that some tragic accident has befallen this child. But in the, in the ancient Near East, in the, in the times that we read this story, disability was a, was a shameful thing. It would have been considered to have befallen you because of some secret sin or the result of sin. And you would have been defiled and dirty in the eyes of the, of the, of the people looking on because you were disabled. It was considered God's judgment on you. Um. And Mephibosheth actually is a is a, a Hebrew name that scholars argue over its exact meaning. But the most persuasive argument that I've read uh, tells us that Mephibosheth is a name that means one who brings shame. One who scatters shame. That's what his name means. And so we have this individual, Mephibosheth, who is the, who's the son of a king. who's the son of a prince. He's a prince himself. And yet he's also one who scatters shame. He's lost his inheritance, he's lost his freedom, he's lost his family, he's lost his place in the kingdom, he's lost all security that he had. And we discover that this Mephibosheth is living in hiding, he's in exile in Lodebar, which sounds like somewhere on Star Wars, doesn't it? It really does, you know, you think, Lo-debar? where's that? Well, it was, it was across the Jordan River, it was outside of the kingdom of Israel, it was, a, it was in exile and he was living in obscurity with Mekhiah, the son of Amiel, who we don't really hear about in the rest of the Bible. Mephibosheth is, is living in this place, Lo Debar, which in Hebrew means place of no fruitfulness. It means place of nothing. It's a no life kind of place. It's a no future kind of place. And he's living in obscurity, in exile, when he receives the king's call. This poor, disabled Dependent, hopeless, helpless man living in a fruitless place in exile is called before the king. Now, we're also told about his hereditary, not just his physical condition. We're told uh, in verse six that he's the son of Jonathan, the son of David. Quite simply, he's he's he bears the wrong name. He belonged to the previous dynasty. He was of the rival regime. He was an enemy of the king. Imagine Mephibosheth. Put yourself into the story in his shoes for a moment. Imagine you're living with Micaiah, the son of Amiel. And one day there's a knock at your door. And you say, hello, who's there? And he says, we're here on behalf of King David. You need to come with us now. Now, he was disabled in his feet, but he wasn't slow up top in his brain. He would have known what, was, what that knock on the door was to mean this is it. This is the end of my life. This is the day that he lived in fear of perhaps for the whole of his life. He was expecting to be executed, to have his neck on the chopping block. And he summoned before the king. Imagine the scene. Just bear with me for a moment. Here we have Mephibosheth, young, disabled individual, and David the mightiest king that Israel had ever had. Obviously, only Saul before him, but ever. There was no one who matched up to David. He was the slayer of Goliath. He wrote all top 40 hit songs in Israel. You know, he was on the billboard charts more than any other artist. He was the greatest, all-conquering king, trusted and loved by his people. And there is Mephibosheth, no Doubt, cowering, vulnerable before the presence of this mighty king. And David looks him in the eye, calls him by his name. Mephibosheth, you shame scatterer. Do not be afraid. They were the most unexpected words that this man ever would have heard. Do not be afraid. And then David goes on in verse 7, if you look with me, which is really the hinge of the entire passage, as he responds with an extraordinary unexpectedness. Do not be afraid. Do not fear. For I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I'm going to show you kindness that you don't expect because of a promise. I made before you were born. Now in First Samuel twenty, Jonathan just said to David, please, if you when you become king, just, just spare all my descendants their lives, just overlook their lives. You don't have to do anything else, just let them live. But David here is a king of grace. You see that he's a king of grace who goes beyond the simple promise that he made to Jonathan to spare the lives of his children and descendants. He wants to show him kindness. Now, that's a much stronger word than we in our English language understand kindness. We think people are being kind when they hold the door for you. So you can go in front of them. We think people are, we, we, Larry and I this morning, it was an act of kindness. The lady across the road from him, the, across the street, she, she was smaller than me. She was like 80 pounds or something. And she was getting her Harley Davidson out of her garage, <laughs> genuinely. And it fell over. And so she just, I was sitting on the deck preparing and reading my Bible. She said, can you help me? And we did this extraordinary act of kindness <laughs> as we went out and lifted up her Harley Davidson for us. But here, the Bible uses a stronger word than just an act of kindness. It's it's the the Hebrew word that perhaps you've heard. It's hesed. It's it's a covenant, faithful, steadfast, loving kindness. More than holding a door open. More than lifting up a motorbike. It's a word that captures an undeserved, unexpected, unearned, gratuitous kindness. Hesed loving kindness that David chooses to lavish extravagantly on this undeserving individual. And notice what David offers Mephibosheth as he begins to unpack what this kindness is going to look like in verses 7. He says, I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan and I will restore to you all the land of your father and you shall eat always at my table. Then he goes on to in verse 9 and 10, as he talks to the servant, he says, all that belong to Saul and to his house, I have given to your master's grandson and you and your sons and your servants shall serve him and till the land and bring in the produce that he may always have bread to eat. David offered Mephibosheth protection, didn't he? He offered him protection. He says, I will, instead of killing you, which is what everybody expects me to do, I will protect your life. As I promised to Jonathan. I'll protect your life. I'll offer you safety and security. I'll bring you back from exile into my kingdom. He offers him provision. I'll restore to you all the land that belonged to Saul. And I'll give you 35 servants that will be at your beck and call. Who will serve you and bless you. And you will be abundantly provided for. And you will have everything that you will ever need in this life. And he offers him A position. You'll notice there's a recurring phrase that appears four times in this passage. In verse 7 and in verse 10 and in verse 13 and in verse 11. Where David tells Mephibosheth he will always eat at the king's table. It wasn't just that he would be there at Christmas. It wasn't just that he could be there at Thanksgiving. It wasn't just that he could show up for the occasional meal at the king's table David promises him a position of always sitting at his table. So much so that in verse 11 we're told Mephibosheth was like one of the king's sons. Like one of the king's sons. Welcomed into his house. Welcomed into his family. Welcomed into a close, intimate relationship with the king. And, and Mephibosheth is blown away. See his words in verse 11. Uh, at the end of verse 8, why should you show regard for a dead dog such as me? That's how he viewed himself. That's how the the culture around him viewed him as well. He's a dead dog. He was living off the scraps. He was hopeless and helpless. He had the wrong name, the wrong credentials. He was shameful. And yet here we find not just that his life is spared, but that God's goodness and grace are heaped upon him time after time in such a boundless and bountiful measure that he's blown away. What is it that you should do this for me? Called and saved and rescued from shame and exile, and the recipient of the bounty of the king because of a promise that was made before he was born. Remind you of anything? Suddenly, blessed with the riches without limit. With a new life. Restored as a citizen of of the kingdom. A landowner like one of the king's sons. And we're told in verse 7 and verse 13, this was always going to be his status. Always. Always never again never again to face the shame the destitution and the hopelessness that he had experienced now always to be part of the king's family as one of the king's sons second samuel chapter 9 is one of the most exceptional and beautiful examples of biblical kindness that you can find in the entirety of the scriptures now, if you were an Old Testament reader, you would have realized, wow, David is the real deal. You would have read this story, perhaps heard it around a campfire or in your, around the breakfast table as your parents told you about the wonders of King David and how he was a man of his word and how he kept his promises to Jonathan. How he was the supreme example of, of the people that God wanted for his own possession. You would have read this story and thought, man, David is a, is a man after God's own heart. What a wonderful example to emulate. So how are we supposed to take the story? Remember right at the beginning I read from Tom Stephan, he says this, doesn't he? Stories draw listeners into the lives of the characters. So that we not only hear what happened to them, but we, through our imaginations, can live vicariously in their experience. So how are we supposed to take this story this morning? What has God, why has God put it in the Bible for us? We live this side of the history. We, uh, we live 3,000 years on, perhaps, from this encounter How are we supposed to apply it and benefit from it? Now, we could go down the route, couldn't we? Don't think it's legitimate, but people could go down the route. that just say, well, you know what? This story is just to tell us something interesting about David and his life. Just gives us a great historical window into what this king was like in history. Yeah, it does. So what? Maybe someone would take it on a step further and say, well, you see, you know, this story is all about keeping your promises. Just as David kept his promise, we should keep our promises. And you know what? We should. The Bible tells us, the New Testament, let our yeses be yeses, our noes be noes, be people of our word. But I don't think that's what, it's, what God is teaching us from 2nd Samuel. We could say, well, maybe the story is here to tell us how to be kind to others. And certainly we should be kind to others, shouldn't we? We should, we should certainly reach out to refugees and homeless people and helpless people. Jesus commands that in Luke chapter 6 and in, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7. We should indeed be kind to others. We should indeed go and help the lady across the street whose motorbike fell over. Perhaps someone would show, go a step further and say, well, this story in 2 Samuel 9 is for us to command us as God's people to go and show compassion to and protect the weakest and the most vulnerable in our world. And certainly we should. The whole Bible calls us to care for the poor and the needy. And yet, the story of David and Mephibosheth is not designed primarily to elicit these responses from us. This story is here to point us to a greater reality. Look with me at verse 1 again. Here's what David says. Is there anybody still left of the house of Saul that I may show him for Jon- kindness for Jonathan's sake? But then in verse 3, he develops it that little bit more. Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? This story is all about the kindness of God to the undeserving and the least expecting. This story in 2 Samuel 9, we're supposed to enter into it. And to see ourselves in the story as spiritual mephibosheths, if you like, this story reveals the kindness, the loving kindness of God, and points us to how, who He is, what He's like, and how He postures Himself towards sinners and, and shame scatterers like you and me. It's a story that is designed to help us to understand what God's greater son or David's greater son is going to do for rebels like us. You see, if you track the whole story of Bible, which and the whole Bible, the, the storyline of the Bible and of which Second Samuel fits in, You discover, we discover that we as human beings are made by the King of the universe to be his people. Yet through a fall, we lose our inheritance, we lose our freedom. We lose our position in the kingdom, we lose our very lives, and we're exiled from God's presence because of our sin and rebellion against Him. We are removed from the blessing and the security of living in God's kingdom under His rule. We are exiled to a spiritual low debar, to a place of no fruitfulness, to a place of no life, to a place of no hope, to a place of no future. We're spiritually lame, in fact, actually spiritually dead. One step further than just being lame. We're broken by our sin. Weak and wretched and condemned to a life of exile from God's blessing that we can't change. We also bear the wrong name. We're born into the wrong family. We bear the name of Adam with all of the connotations of what it means to be a son of Adam. Rebellious, independent, shame scatterers. Deserving of the full weight of punishment of the holy and hot righteous wrath of God. Destined for eternal punishment in hell because of the cosmic treason of our sin. And yet, in an un unimaginable, almost unbelievable, inconceivable, incredible act of God. The king takes the initiative and calls out to us. And Paul writes these words in Romans chapter 5 and says, for while we were still weak, at just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, uh, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love, his loving kindness, his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, while we were in exile in low Debar and spiritually crippled and dead, broken and wretched because of our sin, he calls us through Christ. He shows his love for us. Then while we were still sinners. Christ. Died. For us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood. How much more shall we be saved? He doesn't just. Overlook our lives. Spare our lives. Like Jonathan begged of David. He. How much more. Will we be saved by him. From the wrath. Of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God, how much more now that we're reconciled shall we be saved by his life? 2 Samuel Samuel 9 is all about the loving kindness of God. it It points us to a greater reality of David's greater son and the work of Christ Jesus on our behalf. Think about it. Called from exile. Offered protection. From the punishment and wrath of God against us because of our sins. Offered the provision that we need. Everything we need for heaven. The forgiveness of sins. The righteousness of Jesus Christ. Everything we need for life beyond. Given to us. Position. Adopted into God's family. Welcomed as a son or daughter to the king's table. Not just that we scraped through, not just that we were spared, but that God's goodness and grace are heaped upon us in a lavishness that we do not deserve. Called from shame, called from exile, suddenly blessed with all the spiritual blessings that are ours in Jesus Christ. A richness and a riches without limit. New life, restored as citizens of the king, like a son of the king. This is all about what Christ, it points us to what Christ would do for us. Yes, it's about David's kindness, but more it's about God's kindness to people like us. And so the story should leave us going, not, I wonder how I could be kind. It should leave us going, how? How is God so kind to me, a dead dog such as I? Hasn't God lavished his grace on me? Hasn't he loved me? Wow. He's the God of wow. Wow. Three ways I think this applies. Specifically, just as I was chewing it over and thinking about it this morning, if you're here and you're not a Christian, if you've never put your faith and hope in Jesus Christ, the reality of the situation is you find yourself in the character of Mephibosheth dwelling in Lodebar in exile, outside of the kingdom, broken by sin, lame because of a fall. Helpless and hopeless to change your very situation when it comes to spiritual things. You might be able to go out and get another job and earn six figures and buy a different house and drive a different car and go on holiday to a different place. And temporarily, you might make your life better, but at the deepest level, you remain under the wrath of God because of your dep- your independence from Him and your rebellion against Him and your treason against him and this story in offers you the chance to hear God's call saying I can give you life that you never thought was possible I can forgive you of your sin I can rescue you from your shame I can save you from the death that you will die one day and if that's you this morning and you're here and you know you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ, then Larry, Devin, myself, we would love to talk to you afterwards about the hope and the restoration and the life that can be yours in Christ because of the kindness of our God. Please don't leave this building without having that conversation afterwards. There's a second group of people that are on my heart. And it was a group of people that maybe you're, you're here and you've professed. Faith in Jesus Christ, you, but you just feel a deep, overwhelming sense of shame because of something in your past. Maybe there is something that you've done, and I'm not just thinking about something that you did before you were a Christian that maybe you can't shift, but something maybe that you've done that you just, as a Christian, that you feel, man, I just feel like a hypocrite. You fee- you live under fear. That one day you might be found out for what you've done. Yeah, I I think God loves me. But I'm just not sure because I carry the weight of burden of unconfessed sin. Or secret shame for things that you've done. Or things that have been done to you by someone else. And you're left with the question. Will this dead dog really get into heaven? And I believe God wants to minister his grace afresh to you this morning. And just remind you of his covenant faithfulness. In Christ, God has done everything necessary to bring dead dogs to life. He has done everything necessary to save you. And He knows each one of us down to the very depths of our hearts. And nothing is hidden from Him. And yet, He still loves you. And sent His Son to die for you. To bear your guilt and shame. And His forgiveness is free and full and complete. There's no quotas when God gets to forgiveness. He doesn't say, well, do you know what? I I only have... Uh, a, a storehouse of so much forgiveness for July. And you know, I've used an awful lot of it up on Devon. And so, I'm not that sure that there's enough left. No, he has an abundant, out-lavish, uh, you, you can't, we shouldn't try, but we can't out-sin God because his forgiveness is always plentiful. Psalm one thirty. When the psalmist is drowning in a realization of his own sin, God, he cries out, rescue me from my sin. And God comes and offers him forgiveness that is full and free and complete and abounding and plentiful. Plentiful redemption. With God there is plentiful redemption for he himself will save Israel. You don't get into heaven with your backside on fire. I... I, no one should leave this morning worried. Maybe God doesn't love me. Maybe God doesn't. Maybe his forgiveness doesn't stretch to me. He wants us to be rid of all of our shame and our guilt. There's an English songwriter uh, who... He's an acquaintance of mine. I wouldn't say he's a friend of mine, but he's an acquaintance of mine. His name is Simon Brading. He wrote a song a couple of years ago, which I love. And, uh, and one of the, the verses, he just says, All of my failings, all my shameful thoughts, all the foolish choices that I've made have been hammered to a cross. And Jesus has taken them with open arms at Calvary. And his saving blood. Is life for me. His perfect love paid everything. And I believe God wants to remind us all this morning. That that is true. For us if we put our hope in Christ. And he wants to drive out fear. If David can show this kindness to Mephibosheth. What is God capable of? Yeah. So much more. And then the third group of us. It's just, those of us who, who are here this morning, we're not, life is just ticking by. It's great. God is good. The story here this morning is meant to just cultivate fresh gratitude, fresh affection, fresh wonder, fresh amazement, fresh thankfulness for the kindness of God towards us. For we were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once lived Following the ruler of the air. We were by nature objects of wrath. But God. But God. Being rich in mercy. Because of the great love with which he has loved us. Has made us to be alive together with Christ. And he's taken us. And he's seated us in the heavenly places. And given us a life that we could not hope for. And it's all by grace, so that none of us can boast, but just give him thanks. So let's do that together now in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. And even though it's ancient, it's so readily applicable today. Thank you that it speaks life and truth into our hearts. And I pray for each one of us as we go from here this morning that we would be freshly aware of your grace and loving kindness and mercy towards us in a way that perhaps we've forgotten or it's just become dull and distant to our ears and our hearts. May it be alive again, not because of my words, but because of your words and the demonstration of your power and your loving kindness in King David. And more importantly, and more fully, and more perfectly, in Christ. May you minister the, the mercy that only you can minister to each of our hearts. May Christ be a balm to all of our hearts this morning. Whether unbeliever, struggling with sin, or rejoicing in the gospel. And may we leave here with our hearts full of all that you've done for us. In the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen.